We are beginning uh, to spend a couple of weeks, and by a couple of weeks, I don't know, it might be a little longer than that, um, considering the book of Galatians. I kind of introduced it a little bit last week, but I'll just say a few more things about it and maybe uh, repeat some of the things I mentioned. Um, this year, 2017, October 31st, will mark the, the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And that is typically known uh, by being started by Martin Luther walking up and nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so uh, when that happened, um, a number of things began to change in Europe and the religious landscape. In that, Roman Catholicism really had lost sight of what justification by grace alone meant. And we'll talk about some of those big terms here. Um, maybe today and the weeks we go on. And there's a lot of corruption in the church. And so Martin Luther, when he did that, he began this whole wave of, of reclaiming the gospel. And a lot of his influences and his desire to reform the Roman Catholic Church came from his studies of this little book, Galatians. And as I mentioned last week, he loved the book of Galatians so much that he called this book his wife. And he wrote a commentary on it, and it really was the book that allowed for a lot of people to understand what really is the gospel. And so I I would like for us, you know, in light of the 500 years of Reformation, and in light of people, uh, this is our Sunday school class, right? So that means that your parents probably go to church, you're probably from a Christian home, that you've heard a lot of Christian things, and, and here's the danger, that sometimes uh, this word, the gospel, or God even, or the Bible, or Christ, just become words. And instead of them actually becoming truths that, that sink deep into our heart, that produce joy, love, peace, patience, and kindness, we, we start to kind of maybe resort to God like maybe he's more happy with me if I do some good things. Maybe I can go to heaven one day because I I just went to a lot of church stuff. And so this book is really about one main thing, the centrality of the gospel, of the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul spends almost the whole time talking about. And there are some people who were influencing some of his church plants saying that the gospel isn't enough. And that's, that's the question. Is this little gospel that you heard as a kid when you were maybe five or six, or maybe the salvation story that you heard at vacation Bible school or from your grandma, is it enough to change your life? Does, does hearing about the Easter story, the death and resurrection of Jesus, actually enough? To have someone, to give them the power to follow God's commands, to obey Him. As Paul would say in the Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, joy, patience, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. Is this message, the gospel, can it really do that? Can it, can it change your life as a middle schooler, as a high schooler? Can it change the world? And that's what Paul seeks to try to answer. Like, yes, this gospel that I preached is enough. And you should listen to it. 
And in fact, he would say, anyone who preaches a gospel different than, than me, do you know what he says? Let them be damned. Strong language. And in fact, in this book, you think, you think Paul is just like this meek and mild little apostle? He says to the people who would tell you anything different than the gospel that I preach to them, I wish that they would emasculate themselves. Go ahead and castrate yourselves. He says that in the Bible, in this book, and we'll get to that passage in Galatians 6. So Paul is fierce, he is firm, he is resolute about one thing, the gospel pertaining to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because it is enough, and it is the gospel that we should believe. So today, I would like us to walk through just like the introduction, the first couple of verses. And what we'll see in this introduction is that what's fascinating is he brings up the two themes that will be seen through the entire rest of the six chapters of this little book. Just in five verses, we kind of get the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul and the heartbeat of the book of Galatians. So, go ahead and look down at Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Go ahead and fix your eyes down there. All right. Paul, an apostle... Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask your blessing, your grace, your kindness to us as we consider uh, these couple of verses, but Lord, also as we consider this book from here on out in this Sunday school hour. God, uh, there is no greater need that we have than to have our sins forgiven to be in a right relationship with you, to be justified uh, by Christ's righteousness and his death and resurrection. So, Father, I pray that even, um, even us, 21st century believers, would see how the gospel is enough, would see how it really can transform even the life of a middle schooler and a high schooler. Thank you for this opportunity. We pray that it blesses your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, oh, we got a little spillage over there. Well, we'll let Tyler clean that up. Um, when I was reading a number of books and studies and commentaries on this uh, little book of Galatians, one author said... Um, in his very first sentence, that the book of Galatians is a book for recovering Pharisees. Recovering Pharisees. And when I, when I read that, it reminded me of a conversation that I had with a friend of mine a number of months ago. And this friend is actually quite old. Um, he's an older guy, and we meet periodically to pray and talk about stuff. And one time in passing, he said that he is a recovering fundamentalist. 
And that, 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 that phrase kind of took me by, what is a recovering fundamentalist? What is a recovering Pharisee? Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that a Pharisee is this kind of like religious Jewish leader, right? They're the kind of dudes who knew all about the law. They made sure everyone kept it. But we also know Jesus had a lot of problems with the Pharisees, right? And that the Pharisees were the ones who were like very strict. They were very dogmatic. They were very like, if you even pick up a piece of paper on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law. Right? And so they're always confronting Jesus. Jesus would heal someone from their sickness or he would give them their eyesight back. And he might do that on Saturday, the Sabbath. And they would say, how dare you break the Sabbath? You did work. And so Jesus is always butting heads with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are actually people, but it's, it's also in a way, this term Pharisee has become a kind of phrase used to describe religious people. People who simply kind of go through the ins and outs. Of, they might look like a religious person. They might read their Bible. They might pray. They might go to church. But their heart is far from God. So a, a Pharisee is someone who can kind of keep all the rules. You know, you make sure you don't swear. You make sure that you're nice to people. You hold the door open for strangers. You make sure that you try to say your verses, that you, you read the Bible, you obey your parents, you get good grades. I, I can keep all the rules, but when it comes to my actual heart with God, it seems pretty far removed. It seems distant. And so Pharisees, quote-unquote, actually become people who are more interested by how we look and the rules that we keep than someone's heart before God. Let me give you a few examples. Growing up in church, I was at middle school youth group one time, and there was a girl who came into the middle school youth group we had on Thursday nights, and she did not come from a Christian family. She rode my bus. Her name was Kayla. She's actually in my class, and someone invited her to youth group. Now, as an eighth grader, she had a nose piercing. Whatever, okay, she has a nose piercing. Like, we probably see that all the time. But I guess back, oh, what year was that? 2001, when I was in the seventh grade, when some of you were born, not, or not even born. Um, I remember one of my middle school leaders took Kayla aside, and I overheard this conversation. Hey, we, we, we really like you being here, but you can't come to youth group if you're going to keep wearing your nose piercing. This girl doesn't really know anything about church or youth group. Fine, I guess I won't come back. Another example. Uh, Christians stereotyping people with tattoos or stereotyping people that like to drink alcohol. Right? I mean, so in one sense, I'll, I'll even talk to Christians now. Like, and they, they have to make sure they preface it. I don't drink alcohol myself, but, but I have no problems with other people drinking alcohol. And you have to ask yourself, why do you even have to mention that, that you have no problems with people drinking alcohol? 
Because there there seemed to be this little stigma in the Christian church that for a long time, if you were a Christian who had a nose piercing or tattoos, or if you drank alcohol, you were kind of like, oh, on the fence, a, a kind of a different type of Christian. I mean, we notice this by the way people have dressed, the type of Bible they use, the type of church building they have. Christians, people like us, are always going to struggle with trying to make people look a certain way. And what are we doing? If you obey these customs, these rules, these social norms, then you're going to be a better Christian. If you read the ESV and not the KJV, you're, 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 you're better with me. But what are we doing? When we look at someone and say, you're a lesser Christian for getting a tattoo. Now, these are all, I guess, in a way, like things in my childhood and my upbringing that I, I saw Christians struggling with. But, but what happens is every single one of us, we kind of hold on to this image of what we think a Christian should look like. And then what do we do? We force it on others. We say, if you want to be a good Christian, do these things. And all we have just become is the very people that Jesus confronted in the Gospels. Pharisees. And so my my friend who would say that he's a recovering fundamentalist is someone who came from a very conservative Baptist church in Shelton. In which if you listen to rock and roll, if you played cards... If you went to the movies, those are all sins. Isn't that crazy? And so when he says recovering, he is learning to actually live in grace. That no one has to actually do extra things like abstain from this or or, or do this in order to be a Christian. And this is what... The entire book of Galatians is about, it is helping people like you and me realize that, guess what? You don't have to wear a certain type of clothes to church. You don't have to read from a certain Bible. You can get tattoos. You you can have alcohol in moderation when you're of age, right? You, You know, you can enjoy good things in this world. But none of these things add or subtract to how we can have a right relationship with God. And there's only one thing that can allow us to be made right with God. And that is Jesus. So this book, Galatians, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether or not you feel like you are a Pharisee or not, is written for you. It is written for me. That when I meet other Christians who go to different churches and they might believe a different thing about the Holy Spirit and they might have a different worship style and they may read from a different Bible. We are the same in that we are all justified, made right by God through Jesus. Another word to describe everything that I just said is legalism. Legalism says, 
if I believe in Jesus, but also do a few of these religious things, then God will be really happy with me. How many of us have thought that way before? Maybe, maybe, yeah, right, I'll, I'll raise a hand too. Maybe theoretically in my head I know that God loves me. I've been told that my entire life. Yeah, maybe theoretically I know that I'm a Christian and that when I die I'm going to be with God in paradise. However, yesterday I did some things I shouldn't have said, or I, I did or said. And so kind of to, to make up for that little gap that I feel, I'm going to try extra hard today. Maybe I'm going to try to help my parents out a little bit. Maybe I'm going to read my Bible. Maybe I'm going to try to pay attention in church. I'm going to try to do a little extra to help fill in some of the things that I think God might be mad at me for. See, that, that type of thinking right there, that is legalism. And that's what leads to Pharisees. Students of mine in this room here, I want to tell you something. It is a blessing, it is a privilege to have the opportunity to be raised in a Christian home and to be able to come to church or a youth group and learn from God's word. It does not come without dangers, though. And the dangers is that we maybe hear about God and Jesus and sin, and we develop a few misconceptions about God. That somehow, if I'm not always happy or joyful or want to read my Bible, God doesn't love me as much. Let me tell you right now, if you struggle with apathy or bouts of depression or simply not caring or laziness, maybe you're not interested in this, you want want to know something? God doesn't love you any less. So the book of Galatians, therefore, is a book that we need to hear. And this is a, a, a letter that the people in Galatia needed to hear. A little bit of context. Uh, there's a, a theory about whether or not Galatia was North Galatia or South Galatia. Kind of a big argument about it. It helps kind of interpret a few passages in the book. But more than likely, this region of Galatia, it's a region of churches. It's not necessarily a city. It's probably modern-day Turkey. And so a lot of places will actually, uh, in Turkey, will have tours, and you can kind of travel the, the, the steps of Paul and visit a few of these churches. But Paul was a church planner. And he went, and, and he would kind of, he, he would start churches, he would raise up elders, he would raise up leaders, he would raise up preachers, and then he would leave them, and then he would go and plant another church. And so there's this region or clusters of churches that you can see, actually, at the end of verse 2, to the what? To the churches of Galatia. And so he, he leaves them with the gospel, with good support, and what happened? Some Pharisees who kind of became Christians came in, and they started speaking a different gospel. And do you know what they were saying? We have to kind of mirror it a little bit. But they're pretty much saying to these Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, so do uh, you know what was most distinct about a Jewish male back then? Because they were circumcised. And that was kind of like the sign of the covenant, that you were a Jewish person. You got circumcised. And now you have people who aren't Jewish, who are becoming Christians, and the Jewish people are like, hey, but if you really want to be close to God, you have to get circumcised. 
So if you really want to be a good Christian and follow the Messiah, you have to kind of take on some of these old Israelite Jewish laws. What have they just done, though? They said, trust in Jesus, but also do these things over here. And kind of what they, what they were doing is they are saying, oh, you know that Apostle Paul? He's not really, you don't have to listen to him. He's not even a real apostle. Like there was the 12 original apostles. He wasn't one of them. In fact, Paul, this dude that you keep hearing about, he persecuted the church. He was killing Christians. So like he might have said some good things, but just, just don't even worry about him. Don't even worry about Paul. And so, so Paul receives this information, and he wants to rip his hair out. He, he plants these churches. He does the hard work of, of preaching and raising up Christians and discipling them and leaving them. And then he hears about what they're believing, and he writes this. Look down at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how many of you write letters, but typically when you write a letter, you don't Start on a negative note, right? In, in fact, in the Greek, this is the English, obviously, it's three words, Paulos, apostolos, ouk. Literally, Paul, apostle, not. Like, seems like you have a little bone to pick there, Paul. Immediately, in, in his introduction, typically Paul, he's going to write grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ, like a very common way of introducing, but he, he needs to start off with a very important point. I am Paul, a sent one. So the, the idea of apostle is like, maybe like the idea that we have of an, of an ambassador, right? We have ambassadors like almost every country. And an ambassador, a, a sent one, actually carries with them the values and the authority of that country. So to be an ambassador of our country is not a light task. And so Paul is saying, I am an I'm an sent one of Christ, he'll say in a second. But guess what? Who is he not sent by? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Do you guys ever, like, have to defend yourself on certain things? Maybe at home or at school? I remember one time I was going through a phase of making a lot of prank phone calls in high school um, before, like, caller ID was a big thing. Um, but one time uh, someone took my phone number and was prank phone calling other people and saying some pretty nasty stuff and then leaving my phone number. If you have any problems with me, call 661-972-7797. I never found out who it was. So uh, one day I get called to the office, and they're like, hey, two parents called, and they reported your phone number, and you were apparently saying these really, really bad things. No, yeah, here's the problem. Yeah, sometimes I do make prank phone calls. But what you're saying makes no sense. I have never said those words, and I don't know who those people are. And uh, so pretty much the, the punishment was going to come. They're going to, like, call my parents or give me demerits or something, and what did I have to do? I had to defend myself. 
So I started like arguing. I'll get out my phone records. Like I'll happy to bring those into school. Like if you listen to my voicemail, it says "God bless." Like typically when I do make a prank phone call, it's like, "Is it your is your refrigerator running?" Something or the Baskin Robbins one. Uh, can ask me about it later. It's a good one. And wh- when you defend yourself, wh- what are you doing? You're kind of defending your honor. You're, you're defending your, your status to make sure that you're not going to get in trouble. And so typically when you get defensive, you feel like someone's assaulting or attacking your character or, or making you look bad. And so what do you do? No, I wasn't there when they did that. No, 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 no. That, that was my brother and my sister. I, I was clear. I, I, mean, I don't know what they did. I was, I was just sitting here watching TV. Right? Isn't that kind of how we get defensive? We, we're just caring about ourselves in a way? Like, hey, take, take that. Don't, don't be looking at me. Don't point that finger. It wasn't me. And so it's, it's interesting here to see the Paul, the apostle, defending himself. Saying, I'm Paul as someone, but hey, hey, hey. I'm not just a, a normal apostle. I'm not one sent by men. I'm not like Peter said, hey, you're going to be my kind of little apostle now. I want you to go to Galatia. Right? Isn't there sometimes preachers or, or servants or disciples? Like, so you think of like all the philosophers. You had Aristotle, Plato, uh, Socrates. They all kind of like got sent by the other person, all this different stuff. And Paul is trying to say here, like, listen... I wasn't sent by some random dude. A bunch of people in the church didn't say, hey, let's make Paul an apostle. Who was I sent by? But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Isn't it fascinating that Paul links his authority of being an apostle to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Before even talking about the, the crucifixion, he mentions the resurrection. Why? Why does Paul need to defend himself? By the way, this is the first point. Paul defends his apostleship. Why? Because like I said, the messenger is tied to the message. Paul is tied to the gospel of Christ. He's not someone who just kind of had this funny idea, I'm going to go preach one day. So why does it matter that Paul has to defend himself as an apostle of Christ? Because the gospel is at stake. If you misunderstand Paul and what he's been preaching, you misunderstand the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you misunderstand the death and resurrection of Jesus, you don't understand Paul. They are, they are linked together in a way that cannot be separated. And so one of the main themes of this entire book is Paul having to defend himself. I'm not just a normal dude who decided one day that I want to go and preach. The resurrected Messiah himself, when I was on the road to Damascus to go kill Christians, came to me. This is like, there there are people now today that say they're apostles. They're like, well, I'm a sent one. I, I'm someone who kind of has this commission. Paul and the apostles back then, they were sent. They were commissioned. I, today, I'm sent. I'm commissioned to go and preach. I'm an apostle. Wrong. You are not an apostle. 
The apostle that Paul is talking about here is one who actually was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. They are the ones who had the authority and the ability to explain the gospel. And so do you want to know something different between a Protestant and a Roman Catholic? Roman Catholics believe in apostolic succession, and that is primarily through the person of the Pope. And do you want to know what most of the 95 theses were about that Martin Luther wrote about? The Pope. We don't believe in apostolic succession that, that Paul just kind of made another Paul who had just as much authority. But we do believe in this apostolic authority that because Paul was someone who was sent, who was commissioned, because it was Jesus Christ through God the Father who sent him, that we do this one thing. We believe the gospel that he preached to us. Why does this matter? Because every single day, we hear things different and contrary to the gospel presented in Scripture. And not just from out there, but even in our own hearts, we sometimes believe that God might love us or like us more if we do more good things. But the gospel we must believe is the gospel given to us through God's word, from the apostle Paul, from the apostles. Is it historical faith that we believe in? And so Paul here is giving us the first main theme. He's defending his ministry because if he does not defend his ministry, he can have no authority or no weight to actually preach the right gospel and say, damn all of those people who preach something different than me. Authority does matter. Your parents have authority over you. Why? Because they, they gave birth to you. They, they, they own you. They, maybe they even adopted you or something. They have the right. I do not have the right and the authority to treat you like your parents treat you. Authority matters. And in this case, Paul is trying to establish his authority and his right to preach the gospel. Because why? He is someone who is sent not by men, but rather through Christ. Second point. Paul goes on to define the gospel. Look, look what he says here. Who raised him from the dead. Jumping to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Now, if you were someone who reads the Bible a lot, who maybe read all of the epistles, when I was trying to learn the Bible... I always said, like, look for one of the Ian books, right? You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all those Ians, right? And all of them kind of start the same way, right? Grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me be very clear. These are not pious religious cliches that Paul is actually describing to. When he says grace and peace... Those are the very two things that we receive when we believe the gospel. Grace is, is the thing that, that God richly pours out on us when he chooses to save us. Do you, do you realize that, that when, when it comes to the Christian gospel, 
There is literally nothing you can do or say that can make you justify before God. So what saves you then? Grace. What does this grace look like? Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. A lot of people discuss what that present evil age meant, but what it probably is referring to is the whole human era of sin and people being bent against God. So before Christ, before we were saved, Paul says we were living in the present evil age and we were destined for destruction. But because of the gospel, which was what? That God raised him from the dead, that Jesus gave himself up for our sins, what happens? We can be delivered from this present evil age. But do you know what people in these little church places in Galatia were doing? They were saying, yeah, I, I want Jesus, but also I, I need to go get circumcised. And Paul is saying, you're walking right back into what you were just delivered from. You were just delivered from your sins and from your own ability to have to work for your righteousness. Christ saved you by giving himself up, or why would you go right back to it? And so the gospel that Paul preaches is the gospel of this, grace and peace. That because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, we can have peace with God. Students, just reason for a second. When you look at these first five verses, is there any mention of what you do to earn your peace with God? Is there any hint of you having any helping hand in your own salvation. There isn't one. All right, that's the observation. What does that tell us? That having a right relationship with God, having grace and peace, simply come from the historical facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You do not have to lift one finger for your justified status to be sound. The tone of this letter is Paul, he's angry, he's flustered, he's annoyed. Why? Because we as people, we like to, to take the gospel that is free, that is full of grace and peace, and you know what we like to do? We like to walk right back into the present evil age. Paul is defending the two things that this whole book is about, his apostleship and the gospel. You know, I, I mentioned this illustration at a middle school youth, youth group the other night, but um, I, I can't help but to, to, to mention it. But I was watching this Coast Guard movie, and um, if you ever, like, think about um, a rescue operation, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I watched this, like, 911 videos show, like, you know, before the days of DVR, and you have to actually sit through the commercials and bear through them, right? There was one, like, it was in L.A. They had, a, like, kind of like a, a lot of rain at once, and so this whole 
flash flood river kind of came through the aqueduct part of it. And there was this girl just holding on in the middle of this river. And she is about to get swept away and drown. And she is, she is like, like seconds away from dying. And there's all these like emergency vehicles. There's helicopters. And you see this one guy kind of floating in a wire. And the girl lets go and she starts floating down the river. And then one guy kind of like has this tied into the rope goes out there and grabs her, and they pull her in. And when she gets to land, she, like, falls because the water was so cold. Her legs were numb, but she was helpless. She could not have saved herself. And so, and so it's funny that that show would always kind of be like, um, a year later, you would see the girl and the two guys who rescued her. They're at a park, and they're, like, talking, whatever. But let me ask you a question. When, when you see someone rescue someone, who's the hero in the story? Is it the girl who foolishly was being someone where she shouldn't and who couldn't save herself and desperately needed help? Is she the person like, oh, man, that's so cool. I can't believe she did that. I want to be just like that one day. Who gets the glory? The rescuer gets the glory, right? And so how does Paul begin that, end that? To the will of God our Father, to whom be the what? Glory forever and ever. See, it is God, through Christ, who has delivered us. We were the helpless person in the river who could do nothing on our own. We don't get the glory. We did not choose God. He saved us. And that's why Paul says it is God who gets the glory forever and ever. If you, if you actually were able to somehow convince God that through your good actions and through your good behavior that you should be liked, doesn't that give you the, the, the upper hand to kind of say, yeah, I'm pretty great, right? I get the glory. You know, there's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot with young people in church. They say this, make your faith your own, Right? I hear that a lot. I, sometimes I'll talk to parents. They're like, man, I'm just, I'm just, I, I know they're a good kid, but I'm just really hoping that they still make their faith their own. Kind of like, oh, what do you mean by that in a way? Like they did drive themselves to church instead of you driving them? Like, uh, what, what does it mean to make your faith your own as a sixth grader or a seventh, eighth, nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever grade you're in? What does it mean for you to actually believe in this gospel for yourself? It's a good question, I think. And then here's where I think this, this kind of means something for us. What does it mean for you to make your faith your own? It's, it's for this one thing, that you would realize that you need to be delivered. I cannot make you feel the weight of that. I cannot make you understand that because of your sin, you are desperate for grace and peace, and you cannot do it yourself. You would realize that, that, yes, it is because of Jesus that I can be delivered. It is because of Jesus I can have peace with God. And now because of that, I want to obey him. I want to follow his word. I want to love my neighbor like God has loved me. 
It is not to mimic anyone else, but to say, I was in the river and God rescued me. That's what it means to have your own faith. That you for yourself realize that you need to be saved. The main point of Galatians 1, 1 through 5 is this, that in order to be justified by God, we must hold on to the gospel we received. It's not the gospel that Aaron made up. It is not the gospel that Hope Community Church has. It is not the gospel of America or of, of your parents. It is the gospel of Christ presented in God's word through the apostles who are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Messiah. Now, if I could end by just maybe in a poem, someone who I believe captures the essence of the recovering Pharisee but by looking to the gospel for support. And when I am sinning, God's grace does abound, ensuring my justified status is sound. No wrath is awakened in God at my sin because Christ appeased it, to say so again. God's heart pulses only with passionate grace, which jealously wants me back in his embrace. Listen to this. God does not require even that I confess before he desires his forgiveness to press. Forgiveness has been in his heart all along, and when I approach him to make right my wrong, he runs up to greet me and draws to me near, embracing and kissing and ready to clear. God loves you the very way you are, Before you even utter the words, Lord, I am sorry and I need rescue, he is there embracing you, singing over you, cherishing you, all because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the message of Galatians. Lord, I pray that we would understand the centrality of the gospel, that our Justified status is sound, not because we have done anything. Not because I feel it, not because I know a lot, not because I've I've been doing it a long time, but because of Christ. Lord, our temptation is to know this in our head. But Lord, I pray in our heart we would actually see that in a lot of ways, God, we, we try to work, we try to earn our favor. We, we try to earn good status. But Lord, I pray that we would realize that it is because of Christ that we've been delivered, we've been saved, and we could do nothing on our own. Humble us by this message, Lord. Help us to see you're the person who gets the glory. You, Father, are the one who deserves all the praise and honor. And we pray, Lord, that this time would be pleasing to you. Jesus, then we pray. Amen. All right. uh, Thank you for listening. I know that was a little long for an intro message.